Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning, we are beginning to look at the book of Isaiah. Um, I mentioned this last Sunday in my uh, sabbatical report. that We are uh, going to, over the next probably two and a half, three months, take a high-level view and study of this book of Isaiah. So that's what we're going to begin to introduce this morning. And um, I had intended to really jump into chapters one to five this morning, but the more I thought about it and the more uh, things that I kind of assumed were true, the reality was that we needed a, we need a good overview of the book. This is a massive book. Uh, Isaiah is, the uh, um, besides the Psalms, um, one of the largest books in the, in the scriptures, period, in terms of total volume. And so um, what I want to do this morning is to answer five questions, essentially. Um, so I'll give you a little roadmap for where we're going. I want to answer five questions. First, I want to help us understand who was Isaiah, who, is, who he was as a prophet. Secondly, what was the historical context in which his ministry took place? Because it happened in a real time, in a real place, and we need to understand, we need to understand those things to understand his prophetic word here. We, we need to understand some of the key themes that are that are come out of the book, so we, we know what, what things he's hammering home. And we need to think about how do we organize the book, because again, it is very large. And lastly, why are we going to preach it, or what are some of the benefits of preaching this book? So that's, that's kind of the roadmap for where we're going. Who is he? What context was he operating in? What are the key themes? How are we organizing this book? And why is preaching through this book, such an important and valuable effort for us and our part. So this morning, what I want to do is, is begin with this first question of who was Isaiah? So you can, you can put your finger in Isaiah chapter 1 for just a moment. We're going to be moving around. I'm going to have you looking at things as we go. Um, but simply put, Isaiah was a prophet of God. And you say, well, that's obvious, but, but it's worth stating that he was God's prophet, um, Today, when we think about prophecy, we often think of it in terms of, um, of predicting the future. And, and God then you know, inspires a prophet to see and speak about future realities in terms of an individual or in terms of a people or even in world events. But we can't forget that the second major thing that God's prophet does and this is, uh, again, a big part of what Isaiah is doing, is he lo- a prophet looks backward at what God has already revealed in his word and his law and applies those things to his present context. Uh, Both of those realities are true. God's prophet is uh, one who can uh, give revelation about future events, but they are also someone who looks backwards in explaining and holding God's feet to the fire, as it were, with respect to his already revealed law. Gordon Fee, in his um, uh, commentary describes uh, prophets as he calls them covenant enforcement mediators, which I think is a great way to think about God's prophet. They don't just simply reveal unknown, previously unknown facts, but they apply revelation, God's revelation already given with a divinely granted insight to the present generation in which they minister. And they are doing that, uh, they preach, you know, they're preachers of that covenant, preachers of its terms, you know, the terms of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant, and the, the cursings that follow from disobedience to that covenant. And they do this as God's mediators. They are the God's uh, go-between, summoning his people to hear, to repent, 
and to renew their commitment to God on account of his redeeming love. This is the picture we see throughout, not just Isaiah, but in the other prophetic portions of Scripture. Uh, Now, it's important to understand that as a prophet, Isaiah was a leader, and prophets often were leaders as well as being a mouthpiece heralding God's word. Now, one of the most important prophets in the Old Testament, maybe we don't think of him as a prophet, is actually Moses. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Deuteronomy 18 uh, in verse 15, uh, Moses refers to himself as God's prophet. He says, the Lord your God, in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And then the Lord revealed to him, this is the Lord speaking in verse 18, he says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, that is in God's name, he says, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You, shall, you may say in your heart, oh, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And he gives us the test. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So a prophet was one who spoke for God, but they were also a leader. And we see that Moses was one of those leaders. Prophets sometimes are referred to in the Old Testament as uh, they're called seers, seers. Now, those are basically the same office, the same responsibility. They had the same ministry. Uh, Later on in Old Testament history, they are more commonly referred to as prophets, but sometimes you'll see prophets and seers together. Don't be tripped up by that. That's just talking about a prophet of God. Not all prophets, obviously, are true prophets. Some are false prophets, and, and Moses gives us a test to know how we can discern true from false prophets. Now, later on in Israel's history, the prophets became instruments. They became a means through which God would rebuke his people, through whom uh, they would be the instruments through whom God would warn the people of coming judgment and to call them to repentance. And also, not just confront and to convict, but to point them to the hope that God uh, would bring to his people. And we see a little bit of this kind of spelled out for us, this role of the prophet as confronter, there's the role of the prophet as uh, the convictor in 2 Kings chapter 17. So if you have, a, um, just again, flipping around with me, come look over at 2, 2 Kings and verse 17 and verse, uh, chapter 17, excuse me, in verse 13. He says, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophet and every seer, all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. And then he says in verse 14, however, they did not listen. This is Israel, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord, their God. So, so the prophets, their ministry was one of confrontation. Their one is, was one of conviction. Um, 
and they proclaimed God's word, and oftentimes they were met, they were met with in, uh, disbelief and indifference. The, there were prophets whose ministry was primarily one of proclamation. They, they spoke, they stood up and preached and proclaimed, but there were other prophets who not only spoke, but their ministry also included writing. And that's what we see Isaiah is one of the writing prophets. It doesn't mean he didn't preach or proclaim God's word to the people. It's just that he also wrote those things down. Jeremiah is among the writing prophets. Ezekiel, Daniel, and the twelve, Hosea to Malachi, the, they are among the writing prophets. And they are taking God's word, really, they are echoing the law of God through Moses to the people of God, among other things. And uh, again, like the New Testament teacher or preacher of God's word in the present, the authority of the prophets of the Old Testament rested on their faithfulness to the scriptures, their faithfulness to God's revealed will, not in themselves. So faithfulness to God's word is the test, as we saw in Deuteronomy 18, of the true prophet. There were false prophets, many false prophets, because there's many opportunities to do that, just as there are false teachers today. But Isaiah was not a false prophet. In fact, Isaiah was a true prophet of the Lord and an important, a very important one at that, which is why we're looking at this book. He spoke from God to his covenant people, and he did not shy away from telling them all that God had commanded them. To, he informed them what God was going to do, and some of those things were things that God was going to do in their immediate future. Some of those things were realities that God was going to bring about in the distant, in the kind of distant future, and some of them are things that God will bring about in eternity. It looks all the way to the restoration of all things. So, uh, and he is constantly calling them to obedience to what God has revealed. Now, Isaiah is important for us, uh, not just because it's in the Word of God and all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but it's also a book that is pulled forward all over the New Testament. Isaiah is is quoted at least 65 times directly in the New Testament, far, far more than any other writing prophet. And beyond that, there are hundreds of allusions. As you read through the book, you can almost, you can almost hear Paul, you can hear Timothy, you can hear these guys as they speak using these images and uh, alluding to the words of Isaiah. He was a, 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 a man whose writings were known to the apostles, and so um, there's so much for us to glean from this book as we study it and to understand. Isaiah 6, obviously, is a, is a chapter that is familiar, and Isaiah 53 is a familiar chapter, and those are quoted, and, and we see all that expel, uh, explained in the New Testament. But there's so much more that's in this, in this book that we will see as we go through it. Um, that call, that, so it's really fair, and I think it's a, it's a right description of Isaiah it's been called the fifth gospel, and in some ways it is, um, because of his powerful exposition of this idea of justification by faith, not just from passages like Isaiah 53, but, but others. And I think the thing that stands out as we read Isaiah, and as we'll get into it, is that the way into a right relationship with God, that is by faith, the way into a right relationship is the way on in a relationship with God. We, we don't stop living by faith. We are born again by the grace of God through faith in his Son, 
But we also, as believers, live continually by faith in God, day after day after day, trusting in his promises, believing and obeying his word. And that is what Isaiah does. He calls God's people to trust him. He calls God's people to maintain their faith in him and in his promises. The promises of God are, he says, they're either true and reliable and they're the foundation upon which you will build your life, or he says, you have to look elsewhere. And um, the choice is between trusting the divine word or trusting in human intuition and efforts. And Isaiah makes clear that the righteous shall live by faith. And so that's kind of a, a little bit of a answer that initial question, who, who is Isaiah? He's a prophet of God, and he is operating in the context uh, that we're going to see, which leads to the second question of what is the historical background, and, and where is he in, in human history? How do we understand that? Because uh, we, we need to understand the context. Um, the book has always been known as the book of Isaiah. It's named after him. He tells us in chapter 1 and verse 1, that he is the son of Amos, and, uh, and that's all we know about Amos. He is Isaiah's father. We don't, we don't know any other details about him, uh, at least not definitively. His name, Isaiah, means God is, uh, Yahweh will save. Yahweh will save. Um, which, again, just pulls forward one of the major themes of the book. He was, Isaiah was a contemporary of Amos in the north, and Hosea, who is also in the northern uh, uh, tribes, but also a contemporary of Micah. So remember, we studied Micah at Christmas time a little bit. Micah was uh, ministered in the southern, uh, uh, the divided kingdom in, of Judah. Uh, we know for uh, definitively that Isaiah was married. He had at least two sons. Um, they had names that are quite popular: um, Sheir Jashub and <laughs> Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. So they are climbing the, the ranks of popular baby names. We don't know anything about his father. As I said, we don't know anything about his wife. She's called a prophetess, but that could just be because she's a, a wife of a prophet. Uh, we don't have any record of her making prophetic utterance or communicating anything. Um, but it's reasonable just looking at his life and looking at the historical material in Second Kings and Second Chronicles to assume he came from a wealthier or influential background, given his access to the king's court. I mean, he's constantly interacting with these influential men, and so it's very likely that he, he had, you know, kind of connections there in that sense. He's very different from Micah, because Micah is actually more of a street preacher. He's like your blue-collar guy who's just out there doing his thing, um, and, but Isaiah seems to be able to bend the ear of those whom God has placed in positions of authority. So it's just a different venue for his ministry. He was called by God to prophesy, uh, which he responded to, and we see that call to ministry in chapter 6. But his ministry was not one of um, fruitfulness in terms of right then, right, you know, as he spoke. Um, in fact, God tells him, you're going to go out, and you're going to preach, and you're going to go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, keep on looking, verse 9, but do not understand. And his job was to render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. In other words, they, God was going to use Isaiah in his day 
to confront God's people and harden their hearts so that God could bring about the judgment that he intended. Um, and so it's a, it's a challenging ministry for sure, and yet he remained faithful. As we look at chapter 1 and verse 1, we see a little bit of the historical background. He says, it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, each of these four kings um, reigned for a season. Uzziah reigned for a long time, and Isaiah comes on the scene toward the end of his reign. Uh, but in Isaiah overall was a, generally a good king. He followed uh, God's law, though he didn't do all that God commanded in terms of getting rid of the um, high places and the false worship that was going on. Uh, Jotham, his son, also was a relatively speaking good king. Ahaz was a bad king, and we'll learn a little bit more about him as we go through. And Hezekiah was probably the best of the four. And, um, and we actually can say that uh, Isaiah's ministry stretched into the, into the uh, early reign of Manasseh, even though that's not stated in the book itself. We can kind of extrapolate that. So the period of time that this book is covering is a, is a big chunk of time, um, probably from 740-ish B.C. to 681 B.C., um, and we don't have a lot of dates in this book. We don't understand all what exactly is happening when. There are only a few chronological markers. It's very different than, say, Ezekiel. But um, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, you know, it gives us kind of a marker. Chapter 7, verse 1 gives us a marker. Chapter 36, verse 1 also. Those are the only kind of true anchors we have. Um, and, and so, but understanding that this his ministry happened over all these kings. We know that he was probably fairly young when he got into the ministry of this prophetic work. Um, just, I mean, he would have had to have ministered for at least 35 years. So um, most likely he began as a younger man. And while his preaching ministry stretched over a long period of time, it didn't go over a large geographical area. In fact, he basically prophesied in Jerusalem and in the surrounding region. That was it. He wasn't roaming from place to place or, or region to region. He wasn't a traveling preacher in that sense. Tradition tells us that uh, he met his demise under Manasseh by being sawn in two. And we believe that that reference in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 37 is probably referring to Isaiah. To understand Isaiah contextually, you need to read two chunks of historical background. You need to read 2 Kings 15 to 21 and the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 20, chapters 26 to 33. So my challenge to you this week is to read that because it's probably not something that you've read recently. Read 2 Kings chapter 15 to verse 21 and then if you have time, maybe next week, the following week, read 2 Chronicles 26 to 33, just so you're familiar with the events, what's going on with these kings. And that's, those portions of the historical books tell us a lot of what was happening during Isaiah's ministry. There's a lot of material in the book that helps us understand what's going on, but those, those portions of Scripture add a lot of detail, add a lot of color. Under Jeroboam and Uzziah, 
in uh, Jeroboam in the, the second in the north and Uzziah in the south, before Isaiah came into his ministry, Judah enjoyed a period of prosperity. Things were good. It was a good time. When Isaiah was young, Israel wasn't being hounded by any foreign powers per se. Egypt wasn't in the picture. Assyria was kind of minding its own business. Uh, the Assyrian Empire was sort of self-contained and doing its own thing. Um, so the people of Israel and Judah, they enjoyed a relative peace and prosperity. So early on in his ministry, he's focused on the hidden kind of unacknowledged sins that are going on in Judah. And we'll see what some of those things are. They were things that had become commonplace at the end of a long season of security and well-being. But for the last years of his life, uh, the, excuse me, Uzziah, the king, the last years of his life, which marked the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, uh, Uzziah was a leper, and his son Jotham ruled as a co-regent before assuming the throne himself. And so um, it's at that time that the wheels start to turn in world events, and there is much going on. Most of Isaiah's ministry took place under two of those four kings, under Ahaz and under Hezekiah. So as we think about the bulk of this material is, is dealing with what was going on in Israel during their reigns. Ahaz walked according to the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire, the scripture tells us. He was uh, worshipped, he allowed the worship to continue in the high places, which was all um, uh, false worship, uh, idolatrous worship. Uh, but Hezekiah, the scriptures tell us, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He uh, walked in the footsteps of his father, David. So he was a, a man who, who seemed to know God and to love God, even though he certainly was by no stretch perfect. Uh, while the beginning of Isaiah's life and ministry was one of peace and prosperity, at least in his early days, that all changed, that all changed when uh, the Assyrian uh, uh, leader, Tiglath-Pileser III, ascended the throne in Assyria. And uh, when he took power, he began to expand, and he began to uh, stir the pot, as it were, and to basically kind of light a, f a fire that got all the regional powers worked up. Egypt became uh, ambitious in ways to counter that. Uh, and so what we see is these other major powers begin to assert their influence all in the region of Palestine, Palestine kind of being stuck between them all. And then even later on, Babylon comes and they begin to uh, make things even more complicated. But the thing that's probably most important about all these powers, Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and whatever, the thing that's probably most important to understand as it relates to this book is that all of this tempted Judah, the people of Israel, to make alliances, um, to, uh, to engage themselves militarily and politically and eventually religiously with these other powers, and they betrayed their lack, th these things betrayed their lack of trust in God. And that's going to be a major theme that God, uh, that Isaiah addresses. For example, by linking arms with the ungodly empire of Assyria to counter the threat of Israel, the northern tribes, and Syria's partnership, 2 Kings 16 tells us, or, or looking to running down to Egypt to protect them, God's people demonstrated a lack of faith in his promises, a lack of trust that he would provide for them, and eventually that 
came back to bite them. And Isaiah is there to confront those things. Look, look at chapter 30, verse 1, for just a moment. This is Isaiah preaching, proclaiming to Judah. He says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin. He's, and this is, their, this is their failure. Who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan, and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and for reproach. And what he's saying there is he says, God's people, have you're running down there to Egypt to uh, protect you when you need to turn to me. And he says that will end up being not to your benefit, it will be to your shame and destruction. Chapter 31, verse 1, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he is also wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. He says, now the Egyptians, understand this, are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he, will, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. His point is like, you can run to Egypt, but at the end of the day, that will not save you. You need to look to me. This is a constant temptation it's one that God's people would come back to. So whether it was a temptation to look at Assyria in the, uh, or to run down to Egypt, God's people were always putting their trust in the wrong place. And that's a constant challenge. And with that misplaced trust, we'll see in this book that God's purifying judgment fell on them. Is Isaiah heralded God's word, and God's word was, for the most part, rejected. This is his ministry. This is his work. Isaiah is a, the, the context in which he operates is one of frustration as you read it, that no one can hear, no one can receive. But he's unparalleled in his writing style. He uses nearly 2,100 different words in this letter compared to Ezekiel who uses just a mere 1,500 different words or uh, Jeremiah who uses a 1,600 different Hebrew words. To, to translate and to understand this book requires a really robust vocabulary. And he, and that it just, I guess, pictures the richness of the prose, richness of the text as he writes. He's a, he's a learned man. He's a, he's a well, um, a well spoken man. So what are some of the key themes of the book to kind of move to our third question? We kind of know who is Isaiah? What was the context in which he's operating? Third, thirdly, what are some of the key themes of this book? At the end of the day, this book is about demolition and reconstruction. It's a book about judgment and salvation. And the order, like we said last Sunday, is significant because salvation emerges out of chastening and judgment. In fact, it's only possible because there is chastening and judgment. And so one of the, one of the major themes of the book, as you read it, 
is this idea of God, Yahweh, as the Holy One of Israel. God is the Holy One of Israel. And we see examples of this phrase being used all over the book. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, um, you have despised the Holy One of Israel. In chapter 10, in verse 20, he says, he says, now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 12 and verse 6, again, he says, Cry out aloud uh, for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Speaking of this future glory that is to come. And again, chapter 17, verse 7, chapter 29, verse 19, chapter 30, verse 11, and, and on and on it goes. It's this, this theme is constantly brought forward. God is the Holy One, the Holy One in Israel. He's sometimes called the Holy One of Jacob or simply the Holy One. The, the root of that word, holy, is referenced in the book 68 times as you read through it. It, it, and it all comes back, really, it all comes back to chapter 6. Do you remember when God called Isaiah, he had a vision, and it says he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. And the seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two Face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The, the, when God called Isaiah, he revealed his holiness. The thrice holy God. Just a powerful demonstration. And you remember Isaiah's response, right? He says, Woe is me, for I am a man. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So that, that glorious holiness of God was so powerful, it was so effectual, it had such an impact on his heart that he literally, it carried him forward in the rest of his ministry. And so we understand that God is the Holy One. He is set apart from sin and evil. He is transcendent and pure in every way. God is, the point is, God is not like us. That's what we need to take away as we read this book. We are not like God by nature. We, we are creatures. He is the creator. And one of the most important themes that we can't lose sight of as we read and study this book is that while the situation they found themselves in historically was very different from our own, God is preaching himself to us as we read this book. We have to recognize that everything the Lord reveals to us about his unchanging character in Isaiah's day, that is still true for us today. That is still true for us. God is still the Holy One. He is still the Sovereign One. He is still the Redeeming One. He is still the One who is jealous for his own glory. He is still the Living and True One. He is the Faithful One, the Omnipotent One. I mean, all that God is, he is all the time in every age. That never changes. 
And so when we see that God describes himself again and again and again in this book as the Holy One, we need to step back and understand this is important. God is not like us. He is separate, distinct, and we, we are his creatures, and we are not, we are not holy. Right? God's character doesn't change. His holiness never wavers. But you know what? Neither does human nature. And that leads into the second major theme of the book, and that is the sinfulness of Judah and God's judgment for that sin. The sinfulness of Judah and God's judgment for that sin. Remember, when he saw the holiness of God revealed to him in that vision in chapter 6, he responded by recognizing that he was a man. God's mouthpiece, he as a man, was unholy. He was corrupt. He had an unclean, he says, I am, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. But you see, the people, you know, he had unclean lips, okay, but what about the people? Well, they also had unclean lips and an unclean heart. And, uh, but you say, but they were religious. I mean, they were, they were doing the right things. In fact, they, they worshiped God. They worshiped God in the ways in which God required under the law. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 for just a minute in verse 10. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, uh, God speaking, what, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? So they're bringing sacrifices. They're offering burnt offerings of rams and the fat of cattle, like God prescribed under the law. They're bringing the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And they're, they're following the prescriptions under the law. Uh, they're, they're coming before God in his courts. Verse 12 they are uh, burning incense as they ought and, and following the assemblies that God has called. They're worshiping at the appropriate time in the appropriate place. They, verse 15, are lifting your hands in prayer. Uh, multiplied prayers, right? They're worshiping according to the law. Um, they were worshiping according to, and speaking the right word. They were saying the right things, Look at chapter 29 and verse 13. He says, This people draws near to me with their words, and they honor me with their lip service. They, they were saying all the right things. God's name was on their lips. These were religious people. They worshiped according to the law. They worshiped with their words. Chapter 58, they worshiped by fasting. Chapter 58 and verses 1 to 5. God is uh, clear, it's clear that they are they are even um, they're even giving outward uh, expression to their um, through fasting. He says, and and their response is why, verse three, why have we fasted and you do not see God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? We're doing all these things, God. Why are you why are you confronting us? The reality is that they were worshiping according to the law externally. They were saying the right things. They were even fasting and, and doing all the external things that gave some external lip service to God. But the problem was they had unclean hearts. They were still rebellious in their heart of hearts. And what we learn from Isaiah is that even though they did these things, they, they were rejecting 
They were rejecting his word. Their hearts were not with him. They, they were not relating to God on the basis of faith and repentance and faith, but one of external obedience, lip service. And this is what we see God, uh, Isaiah calling out in the very first verses of chapter 1, verse 2. He says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. And then he gives this word picture. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again? Are you to continue in your rebellion? He says, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. This is the picture. They were rebellious, rotten to the core on the inside, and they didn't acknowledge it. And several sins in this book are pointed out for special condemnation. One is the sin of uh, pride. God confronts Israel's, or Judah's, pride. We see this um, in a bunch of different places, but one example is in chapter 2, in verse 6. These people, they, they, they are prideful and that they are, take, they are basically flirting with false worship. And verse 8 says, they have filled the land with idols. They worship the works of their hands, that which their fingers have made. This is, uh, they're trusting in chariots and horses, verse 7, silver and gold. Like all the things that God said not to multiply in the, under the law, the things that they would put their trust in. He says, you, you've done all of that. You've been prideful and turned away from me. A second sin that's singled out for special condemnation is the lack of faith, unbelief. And, um, and again, we see examples of that in Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 9 when Ahaz is in a moment of crisis and God tells him, don't fear Israel and Syria. I know that they look like they're coming for you, but I will protect you. God says that. And then he tells him at the end of verse 9, Isaiah says, if you will not believe you surely shall not be established or you shall not last. He confronts their unbelief, his unbelief, which he ultimately uh, continued in. So unbelief is a, is a major uh, lack of trust in God, and we saw some examples in chapter 30 and 31. A third sin that is brought to the foreground for special condemnation is um, uh, oppression and injustice against the needy and the vulnerable. This is again and again throughout the book. He says, wash yourselves, verse chapter 1, verse 16. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead, plead for the widow. He says, those who are most needy, those who are most vulnerable, they must be cared for. That is what God requires. A heart for the, the weak to seek justice, to reprove those who do evil, not to embrace them, not to partner up with them. Chapter 5 and verse 7, he says something similar. 
This is for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. So he uses word picture of Israel and Judah like a vineyard. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant, thus he looked for justice in this vineyard, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. He says, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. What, what they were doing was they were enriching themselves and crowding out those who were weak and vulnerable, taking, it by, taking advantage of them by their power by their resources, rather than doing justice. So these are some of the things, some of the things that will come up. But, but Israel is corrupt. They are sinful, and they will be judged. And we have to, as we come to this text, recognize and see ourselves in this text, because we're no different. The human nature has not changed. We need to learn from their mistakes. We need to see how our own divided hearts can lead us astray despite being the recipient of all of God's new covenant blessings. And it's important to understand that God's judgment, which is a big part of that confrontation of sin, God's judgment is not for necessarily for annihilation, but for purification, to cleanse. Uh, chapter 1, verse 25 kind of captures this idea. He says, I will also turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and I will remove all your alloy, all that's, all that's mixed in that shouldn't be there. Then I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. God says, I'm going to purge, I'm going to cleanse, and then you will be what you were created to be in the beginning. So his judgment isn't just capricious. It isn't willy-nilly. It's to purify, to confront, and to restore. So we see the sinfulness of Judah and God's judgment, but another major theme is the sinfulness of the nations and God's judgment against them. See, he doesn't just chasten his people. He also judges the world for its unrighteousness. God is a righteous judge, and even though he uses wicked people in this book to... Um, almost like a, like a tool to accomplish his judgment, it doesn't mean they get off scot-free. He says, listen, in the end, he will deal with them justly and righteously. If you look at Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5, Assyria was going to be the means by which God was going to judge Judah. He says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation. God says, I am doing this. And commission, it against, and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose, in other words, it's a serious purpose in doing that, simply to destroy and to cut off many nations. And then he says um, in verse 12, So it will be that the Lord, when he has completed all his work, of purifying judgment, he will say, and I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by my power and by my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. And then he says in verse 15, is the axe, which is what Assyria is, to boast itself over the one who chops with it? No. Is, it, is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? Of course not. 
His point is this. After he judges God's people, he's going to turn, and we'll see in chapters 13 to 23, God is going to judge the nations, Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Ethiopia, Egypt, Tyre, all these godless nations who had rejected God, they would also be judged. And I think what we need to understand as we read Isaiah is it gives us some of the Bible's most profound statements on the nature of earthly history. There's a philosophy of history in this book. We see the relation between the king of kings and the kings of the world. And what the Isaiah will teach us is that God exerts divine control over all of human history. Right? And what we learn is that the historical events that arise in time and space, those things are happening as a result of supernatural causes, supernatural direction. Kings and leaders, the people upon whom the hinges of human history outwardly turn, are themselves very much personal and responsible souls who will be held accountable for their wickedness. God is a righteous judge. And he judges, Romans 2 says, without partiality to the Jew and the Gentile. God will judge the nations. But judgment is not God's final design. And I think that's also, we have to counter all that talk of judgment with the other important theme of the book, and that is the theme of salvation. Because salvation is a key theme in, in Isaiah. By God's grace, we are not in the same position as Judah because we live on the other side of the dividing line in human history, which is the cross and the resurrection. And so we see what God has accomplished. It was Christ who told his disciples, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And Isaiah speaks about Christ again and again and again in this book. Isaiah has more specific references to Messiah than any other Old Testament prophet. But it was all future to them. But for us, we see it as uh, so many of the details are in the past. So we have the blessing and the benefit of seeing how God's purposes have been fulfilled and how the promises come to pass. And so we see the assurance of God and the grace of God and the salvation of God in this book. The assurance of forgiveness for the repentant sinner is reiterated again and again and again. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They are red like crimson. They will be like wool. He says, if you confess, if you, can, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. Or chapter 12 in verses 1 and 2. He says, then you will say on that day, that future day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God, Yahweh, is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. In chapter 30, in verse 18 and 19, again, he says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, to Israel and Judah. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. This is the heart of God. He is a God who, 
who saves. He's a God who rescues, who forgives. Chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Chapter 43, verse 25. Again, we see God is a compassionate God, a forgiving God. He says, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So we can't lose sight of all the judgment and all the confrontation. God is a God of forgiveness. And the instrument of that salvation that we see laid out throughout this whole book is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's called the child in chapter 7, verse 14 in chapter 9. He's called the shoot or the branch, pointing out that he is, he is a, uh, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is called the stone in chapter 28 and verse 30, in chapter 32. And of course, later on in the, in the back section of the book, he's called the servant of the Lord. Again and again, the emphasis is that God will not only send a redeemer, one who would save the instrument through which he would do that, but that redeemer would also be empowered by the spirit of God, which is a big theme in the book, the spirit of Yahweh is over and over again mentioned. It's interesting, though, as you read the book, there's, there's three figures. There's the sender, there's the one sent, the servant, and the spirit of the Lord, which is kind of a, 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 a clear indication of distinction within the Godhead. And so we see a Trinitarian flavor to the book of Isaiah. And another key theme Lastly, that's so important, is that God is sovereign. And we see that in chapters 40 to 48, especially. He says, what are the idols of the world? They can't do anything. They're dead. I'm the living one. I control all things. And of course, as we see him describe how he wields and uses man's sinfulness to accomplish even his judgment, like we see that God is in control of human history. So, so those are the kind of the key themes of the book. Fourth, how should we break this book down? Three major movements, ways to think about the book. In each of these sections, there's a different portrait of the central figure, and that is the Messiah, the agent of God's purposes in the rescue and restoration of his people. Chapter 1 to 39, we see the Davidic king. He's front and center. This descendant of David this one who would restore and bring back all that was lost, the fulfillment of God's promises of an eternal dynasty to David, that is what is front and center in chapters 1 to 39. In chapters 40 to 55, we see Messiah portrayed as a suffering servant. He's the one who is suffering as a substitute for the sins of his people. And then chapters 56 to 66, we see Messiah Christ is the anointed warrior, conquering enemies and restoring all things, vanquishing evil. So that's kind of a way to think about the book. There are other ways to break the book down. 1 to 39 could be a chastening of God. 40 to 66 is the comfort of God. Like there's a lot of ways to think about the book. But on the backside, understanding how Christ is front and center, we see Christ as the Davidic king, Christ is the suffering servant, Christ is the anointed, spirit anointed warrior, the one who has the spirit of the Lord. 
So the prophecy presents a strong case, a strong case that the curses that God gives to Israel under the old covenant would indeed work themselves out. God is a man who keeps his word. If he says he's going to judge, he will judge. They will be chastened. They will be exiled. But through that chastening and exile in the ministry of the servant of the Lord, their sin will be taken away. And so the kingdom fallen becomes the kingdom promised. And as we'll see at the end of the book, becomes the kingdom restored. God's work completed. All of that, all of that is here in this book. So why are we preaching this book? Lastly, what's the final? So why preach Isaiah? I confess I've asked myself that question a couple times this week. Why did I agree to do this? This is such a massive book. There's so much here. It's, it's really, uh, I tell the kids, it's like uh, you ever seen in some of these um, restaurants that have like a, like a five-pound hamburger? <laughs> and it's like if you can eat the whole thing, you get your picture on the wall and like your meal is free or something like that. I feel like I'm sitting down to eat a five-pound hamburger in, in coming at this, at this book. But there's so much to benefit us, and I want to just lay out some of the reasons why I think we need to look at this book and, and teach through it. First, to help us know God better, to, to know God. I think one of the great weaknesses in our contemporary church contexts is how little we truly understand and, un, and know about God's character. We have created God in our own image. God says, you thought I was just like you. And we need to remind ourselves, like Isaiah saw in chapter 6, that there is no one holy like the Lord. So we come to this book to know God's character. In, in Isaiah, we learn of his sovereignty and we learn of his faithfulness and his holiness, obviously. We learn of his grace and compassion for the, for the repentant sinner. We learn that God is the one who keeps his promises. We, we need to know God better. And I think this book will help us do that. Secondly, to build our faith. To build our faith. Isaiah, in this book, we are wooed away from the siren song of the culture, which wants to, uh, uh, with all of its kind of superficial understanding of human nature and Band-Aid remedies that can't mend the broken heart or the culture's materialistic ways of living, um, that fail us again and again. Like, we're, like all of that is, is swept aside as we read this book. In Isaiah, we're encouraged to place our trust in God's promises and not human efforts. Fourth, or thirdly, excuse me, we're studying this book to strengthen and defend the uniqueness and exclusivity of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can't preach Isaiah and not see Christ. <laughs> It's, he's everywhere in this book. In Isaiah, we are challenged to set aside every idol and shown that Jesus is indeed that king in the line of David. He is the son of God, the suffering servant, and he is the anointed one uh, uh, led by the spirit of the Lord, accomplishing redemption for his people. Like you can't miss that in this book if you're studying it properly whether it's chapter 11 or chapter 53, or whether it's uh, all the uh, pictures he describes in chapter 40 to 48. Is, you know, we see, we see all, just Christ is constantly brought forward. 
So this book will strengthen uh, our commitment to the exclusivity of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ. And fourthly, this book will help us navigate this waiting time that we currently live in because we are between his first and second coming. In Isaiah, we're equipped to wait with expectancy. We're, we're equipped to wait for the Christ's return, for his restoration of all things, for justice to be measured out against the wicked, for the curse to be undone. Like, and God, and I think one of the things that makes this book so powerful is that God, who has kept his promises in the past, and we see how those promises have worked themselves out, God, who has kept his promises in the past, is a God who will continue to keep his promises into the future. Like, if you can trust him in the past, you can trust him into the future. And we need to be reminded of that as we sit on the, this waiting time, this, this in-between time between his first and, and his second coming. So many of our current needs, problems, and weaknesses are met in this book. And so I think it's worth preaching. It's worth studying. And I'd invite you to, to read the book with me. So for next week, along with reading all the historical stuff, read Isaiah 1 to 5. Just read it. Reread it a couple times. It won't take you that long. Uh, chapter 4 is nothing. You can read that in 30 seconds. But read the book. Be familiar with it because we obviously can't, we can't exposit it verse by verse, section by section. We have to hit the main themes as we go through each section. But I think you'll be well served if you're familiar with what he's saying. And then as we pull that together and understand them, because we're going to do this in terms of big chunks, big picture themes, because there are, you know, there's a way to break this down and it's a little bit more um, compact. And we'll see the, some of those important themes and we'll come to all of this stuff. We'll, we'll see who God is and we'll see how we're to have faith in him. We'll see his grace and forgiveness in Christ. We'll see how to live in that in-between time. This is, all of this is, to, is for us here in this book. So looking forward to teaching it. And pray for me, <laughs> because my challenge is, what do I include and what do we cut out? And that, it's all profitable. It's all interesting to me. And uh, as one who's used to preaching kind of verse by verse, it's very hard to, to think about coming at this in big chunks. But um, it can be done, and uh, it's a good skill for me to learn and, and hone. So we'll be doing that next week. So read chapters 1 to 5. Read 2 Kings 15 to 21. Read 2 Chronicles 26 to 33 if you have a chance. And I think you'll, be, you'll get a lay of the land. You'll understand. Let me pray for us as we turn our heart to the Lord's table at this time. Father, thank you for um, this book. There's just so much here, so much for us to learn and to understand and to embrace. And um, again, we need wisdom to know what to include and what to bring to the foreground and what to just uh, let pass on by uh, for another time. Help me, Lord, and help our people, help this church to know you, to love you, to walk with you, and uh, that we would know you better and glorify you with our lives and all that we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.